With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey there, if you're a listener that makes marketing decisions for your company, we'd love to have a discussion with you about being involved in the Boardroom Podcast, the Boardroom Show, and or the California Gold Surf Auction. Shoot us a DM off of our Instagram, at Boardroom Show. Matt George is an extremely smart guy, a great conversationalist with deep experience in the surf culture space, fun, enthusiastic, passionate, and sincere. What's not to like? A very special boardroom podcast with Matt George. Let us begin. Matt. Hey, Scott. How you going, brother? Good. Wow. I, I, I look a little like Colonel Kurtz right now, but uh, it's about the best lighting I can do for you here. It's about midnight, about 11 o'clock here. So, yeah, Thank you so much. Hold on. Let me, first of all, let me say welcome to the Boardroom Podcast. It's great to have you. Matt George is with us. Matt, yeah, it's it's 11, a, it's 11 p.m. in Bali. Thanks for making the time to to do this because 7 a.m. is perfect for me. At 11 p.m., I would be sleeping. Well, it's a real pleasure uh, to be on there. I've just so respected the boardroom. I re- I've respected what you've done and the whole live shaping thing. And of course, my brother Sam, you know, uh, always bringing back these fantastic reports of what you guys do down there. And it's just so exciting to me because design has always been so important to me. And I've been involved in surfboard design on, on a very intimate level with some pretty big caps. And so I'm really, I'm really excited to talk to you, uh, you know, not just about my book. I, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm here to talk about surfboards and design, man. Well, let's just, the conversation will take it, take us wherever it takes us. You know what I mean? I, cool. I, um, I usually start these off with sort of a silly question to get the brain going, but I sense with you, I don't even need to do that, but I'm going to anyway. Um, Go ahead. What was the last board game that you played? The last board game I played was something I should know that. And it was, uh, it was, I've just, I've always loved like um, intelligent trivia, you know, like, uh, you know, an ostrich's eye is, is bigger than his brain, you know, like intelligent stuff, not, not just like, you know, what is Angelina Jolie's middle name? You know, it's like, I I like the real intelligent stuff. And there's this game (laughs) 
where it's, I should know that, you know, and, and <laughs> they ask you these questions and you, and you get points. If you know this, this trivia that that's, I don't know, that that's actually all about storytelling, really, you know, knowing, knowing things, you know, like, you know, what's Bob McTavish's middle name or, you know, what, what, what's Scottish, you know, uh, what Scottish town is he from? You know, stuff like that. You yeah, know, yeah. I, I really, uh, that excites me. Of note, Margaret is both Bob McTavish's and Angelina Jolie's middle name. <laughs> <laughs> Scott, fantastic. Yeah, yeah, we'll just go with uh, Next time we're together, I can't wait to play this game with you. Fantastic. <laughs> uh, wow. I'm really hey, what? impressed. Let me ask you this, because as you know, I'm pretty I'm pretty close to Sam, as close as you can be to Sam. Sure. And um and he's close with my family, and I know Sam pretty well. What is it what was it like in the in the George household as a boy? And for you eventually as a young surfer, um, can you give me some insight into what it was like? Was I know your father was a dentist. I believe he was a dentist, right? In the Navy. Uh that's interesting. No, my father was a fighter pilot. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> okay, I apologize. So that's even better. Your no, no, my was father was a fighter pilot. He 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 flew the F6F Hellcat in World War II, and he was training to go uh, fight in the Pacific Theater. And then World War II ended, and this was back when America actually honored their veterans. And so when you got back to the United States, they just said, whatever you want to be, we'll turn you into that. And since he came from humble backgrounds, and, and, and uh, he decided, well... I guess dentists live up on top of the hill. So I'll be a dentist. So he went back into the Navy and, and the Navy trained him how to be a, a, a dental surgeon. And so he became a dentist in the Navy, but he always continued flying. And he always had an airplane. And, uh, you know, I, I look at him more like an aviator than just a dentist, certainly. Yeah. Well, again, my, I apparently I don't know Sam that well. Because I thought I thought your dad was I knew he was in the Navy. I just thought he was a naval dentist. I didn't know he was a fighter pilot. That's fascinating to me. My father also a fighter pilot. Um tell me about I your know mom. that. I know that. I think we share that. Fantastic. Yeah. yeah. I think I and I think you and I know what that that means. It stays with a man like a tattoo all their life. Uh, it's not uh you know, you might be a dentist or you might become a teacher, you might become all these remarkable people that after a, a war experience and all this heavy training in aviation after world war ii or vietnam or these helicopter pilots that came back and all of a sudden you know they're a grade school teacher and and you realize that aviation is is in their heart uh as much as a tattoo you know and uh that was my dad he he he, he always had aviation on his mind and um even though he was a dentist, I'm proud of that in the Navy. I'm not trying to run that down at all. But uh, I always look at my father as the guy that hopped into that cockpit and fired up the engine. Yeah, cool. And 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 um, being the son of a fighter pilot and um, and being a Navy, a military kid, uh, what was it like? You know, tell me about your mother a little bit. Was she sort of the classic um, wife of a military pilot? Absolutely. She was a school teacher, of course, you know, when you're in the military, you know, you marry the school teacher. And I think that's where Sam and I got our literary bent. You know, that's where we were just constantly given books and reading. And and it was just to us, reading was like breathing. And just like my mother, who was also um, a, a very good writer, 
in fact, an, a, a remarkable writer. I think that's where we got it. So we got we got our whole daring do. My brother and I got our whole daring do and our whole uh, our whole professional surfing, you know, risky lifestyle from my dad. But him and I both got. I believe we got our literary uh, our literary minds and our literary storytelling skills from uh, from our Irish mother. Well, I got to say, um, in in all complete transparency, I hadn't really read any of your work prior to you sending me what you sent me, and at least that that I can remember. And it's because, by and large, surf media kind of bores me. I, I would much rather read about the death march and the baton. You know, I'm just. I know there's some great surf writing out there. I just can't wade through all the bad stuff to find the good stuff. And I have mm. since read a few of your pieces in the book. And Matt, it's fucking really good, man. Like I was showing my wife, I'm like, we've got to read this book. It's, I was, you know, like basically it kept me wanting to read more. It wasn't like, okay, that was a cool anecdote. I'm off. So congratulations. The books the you know, you're, as you mentioned, it's not a memoir. It's almost, um, uh, what do you call that when you, when you bring a bunch of different pieces together, it's a, um, it's a compendium. And, and I believe that it's, it's a zeitgeist. Like you can check in on the zeitgeist at different times. Now I get this a lot. I, since I published this book and I collected all my, you know, I collected all my stories and put it in, in D'Angelo publications asked me to put it all together and, and they were going to publish it for me. I thought, wow, yeah, this is going to be interesting because this time it's not going to have the distractions, Scott. You know, now you and I grew up with surf mags, and a lot of people pick up surf mags and they thumb through them from the back to the front, you know, and they're just looking for photos of pipeline and all this kind of stuff. So my stories, which were very serious to me, were quite often very distracted with you know photographs of surfing and you know Kelly Slater going off the lip and and Mark Ocalupo, you know, winning belt or whatever they were doing, and it, it got distracting and also i think a lot of people i think a lot of the i think a lot of the surfing world was was very disillusioned by what we called surf journalism because so much of it was so boneheaded and it was so simple and in many times and in many ways it could be so infantile and so predictable so i think that um stories by dave parmenter uh myself matt warshaw uh sam I think quite often they were they were they were part of a distraction. And so to take this book in deep, you know, the one that's just been published and to to collect these stories as a literary event and be able to see them in an undistracted way, I, I think that it, it really helps people think, wow, you know, there were some journalists out there that really captured the surfing zeitgeist. Drew Campion, you know, handled the whole era of the 70s with the psychedelia and the drugs. Uh, my brother Sam brought a real intellect to Surfer magazine. Matt Warshaw brought real verisimilitude, you know, with research and 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 the importance of remembering. You know, these different people have been out there collecting these incredible stories. And let's face it, storytelling is really important to any tribe, any tribe in the world. And surfing is a tribe. So I'm so proud to have been able to have a publisher that believed in me to collect these surfing stories together undistracted and to have them offered as a literary experience. So thank you, Scott. That's a big compliment. Yeah, I'm enjoying the heck out of it. Uh, the book, by the way, In Deep, The Collected Surf Writings of Matt George, 
uh, almost four decades of surf riding. Um, incredible, fun stuff to read. And, and the first thing, of course, is the forward from Kelly. You must have been psyched when he sent that to you. Um, I'm interested to know, is there how much editing goes into a forward? When somebody sends you a forward, you read it and you're like, okay, that's cool. But can you change this? Like, do you guys just go straight to the to the publisher, to the printer with that? or Straight to the publisher. Here's how it works. A forward is is sacred. A forward with, you know, the, the couple of books I've done is a sacred thing. When Kelly called me up and just said, man, I, I know you're putting this thing together and we've known each other since I was, you know, 17 and before, but um, I, I really want to write the forward. And if you read the forward to Kelly's book uh, by Clark Little's photography about how important it is to tuck into a closeout, I mean, uh, Kelly can write, man. I'm telling you, yeah. this guy, he's no dummy. You know, this, no, he's, he's very he's, intelligent. Yeah. He's hes unbelievable. And so when he he got into it, um, that went straight to the publisher. Um, so, yeah, a forward, a forward, you've really got to leave alone. It's got to be hands off. And um, I, I was just so impressed when 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 uh, when the publisher let me finally see it. And I just went, Kelly, 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 you know, is there anything you can't do? You know, it's like, I don't know. So no, you can't touch a forward. It's, it's sacred. Yeah. It was, it was a great read and, and you're right. Kelly's incredibly intelligent and uh, he's a real, he's a real, like you and your brother, he's there. He's a real blessing to the surf space, you know, that we have a champion. that's just so intelligent. No, I agree. And I'll tell you something else. Uh, I'll tell you something else about Kelly. You know, there's a lot of look fame incredible fame remarkable fame is a virus that kills the perfect example is michael jackson or you know kurt cobain or you know jimmy henry whoever you know this incredible fame but the 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 the, the perfect example of of the of the the virus of fame that kills is michael jackson i mean the guy turned into a monster in in, in every way and eventually just led that just died this horrible undignified death Kelly Slater has remarkable fame. He has created and built the only dream that everyone has in our minds, the wave pool in the backyard. And now he's built it on a huge global scale with the people that control all the oil and all the power of the world. Okay. This is Kelly Slater. He succeeded. He exceeded. He achieved excellence. I, I, I'm so impressed that the fact that this guy with his incredible fame did not commit suicide like so many of other surfers have, whether it was ODing like Andy Irons or whether it was ODing or whether it was drugs or whether it was booze or, you know, whatever it was throughout history, we have this remarkably famous, internationally, globally famous surfer. And what has he done with his fame? excellence achievement 11 world titles and you can criticize him as much as you want man but i'll tell you what if you do it around me i'll meet in the parking lot yeah criticizing kelly it's kind of low-hanging fruit and it's it's fruit <laughs> yeah i was gonna say it's fruitless but um let me ask <laughs> you this let me ask you this um as you know the olympics are coming up here they're going to be at chopu we all know that kelly slater could win and has won recently. Well, I don't know if recent, but he can win at Chopu. If Chopu is six to eight feet, Kelly Slater is in the in the discussion. 
but whether or not he makes the Olympic team for the United States is up in the air. And in fact, he probably isn't going to without some sort of special waiver or somehow they hmm. manipulate it, which hmm. which might happen. Uh, given everything that we all know about Kelly Slater, that he's basically the um, the ambassador for surfing to the world and understanding that the IOC looks at him and goes, we kind of need like he's. He drives the bus here for us. Um, do you think that Kelly, first of all, should be in, on the Olympic team for the United States? And um, should we, should they, the powers of be, do everything in their uh, ability to make that happen? Absolutely, 100% yes. And I am ashamed of our last showing at the Olympics. I'm ashamed of it. We had, look, John John's a nice guy, but he showed up injured. He said he was going at 50%. He said it out loud. Our team didn't even march in the opening ceremonies because it was too far away from their little camp. Uh, my God, okay? You don't think Kelly Slater would have showed up? You don't think he would have gone 100%? You don't think he would have been injured or not? You don't think he would have surfed until he died? You know, it's like, I, I'm just ashamed of, of, of our last showing. I'm very proud of Carissa. I'm very proud of everybody, you know, but I just thought, my God, Kelly Slater. Look, the dream team, the basketball dream team. Michael Jordan and the Bulls get to show up, okay? Um, you know, uh, uh, Roger Federer gets to show up. All these people get to show up, and they all somehow get in there, and they're getting paid a gazillion dollars a year, and we're not going to let Kelly Slater surf Chopu. Has anyone seen him actually ride that place? It's like, are you out of your mind? If you have Michael Jordan in the Olympics, then no matter what happens, you get Kelly Slater there over John John Florence. Yeah, that's the thing, right? Like if, and I agree with you. I, I, you know, as a fan, I just want to see Kelly Slater in the Olympics, and I want to say, I would, I mean, I would probably shed a tear if he won a gold medal, but, but in so doing, right now it looks as if, if in fact that was to take place, we would be taking somebody out of the equation a Griffin Cole Pinto. I'm just throwing some names that are at the top right sure. now. It's Griffin. And I think it's, um, I don't even know who the other guy is. I'm missing it, but it's some other American. Sure. Um, I don't think it's Kolohe, but anyway, one of those guys is going to get 86 perhaps if we just sure. like throw in this and there's been talk that there's sort of a special, and I don't have anything to back this up, but there might be a Kelly Slater, uh, a waiver or exemption of some sort so that he can kind of slide into the USA team. But um, anyway, yeah. Look, uh, well, look. So it's, it's all been settled by the. It's it's all been Scott. It's all been settled by the mid year cut. Okay, if you can't handle the mid year cut, then don't even show up on the tour. You know, it's the bottom line. You go hard or you don't. And the bottom line is this. Okay, Kelly Slater is the greatest surfer that ever surfed Chopu. Competitively, he is the greatest surfer that has ever done it. Roger Federer shows up at the Olympics. Michael Jordan shows up. All these people show up, okay? And we're not supposed to let Kelly show up so that, I don't know, Carlos Munoz from Costa Rica can be there. You know, it's like, but no, this hey, is about man, I, I like Carlos. Now, listen, I like Carlos. I think he lives. Yeah. Okay, yeah. please. But this is the Olympics. And if they can send 
all these super the dream team that just annihilates the basketball team you know from uh from afghanistan if tiger woods can show up and annihilate the golf team from andorra okay we can't send kelly slater i mean this is the new olympics man so i I don't think surfing should be uh i don't think it should be surf i don't think it should be treated any differently than the chicago bulls right that's i love that so we're saying basically whatever the isa which is the governing body for the united states um whatever they whatever they do like they have this process that needs to be overridden i agree with that i think that they've already taken the olympics which were originally for amateur sports that's what they were look at it throughout its entire from 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 the plains of marathon you know, to the ancient Greek to now, okay, we've ruined the whole thing by allowing people like Michael Jordan to be in the Olympics. The greatest Olympic event used to be rowing and crew because it was completely and utterly amateur and could lead to nothing, couldn't lead to contracts, couldn't lead to sponsorship. It didn't lead to anything. It was all about amateur people. Muhammad Ali didn't get paid a dime and he won a gold medal until he could go pro. Now we've got Michael Jordan, Tiger Woods and Roger Federer swinging tennis rackets in the Olympics. It's like you've ruined it. It's not about amateur. It's about viewers. And I understand the IOC needs that. So the bottom line is don't tell me that we can't have special um that we can't have special circumstances for people like Roger Federer and Tiger Woods and Kelly Slater, whom I put on not only peerhood, I personally think Kelly is a far superior athlete to Tiger or Roger, personally. Yeah. Yeah. But of course, if this is what the new Olympics are, then yeah. you put the best in the world in them. That's it. Yeah. It's changed. Yeah, I love it. I, I'm going to take you back to a time, I think it was 2002. Um, it was at the Dana Point Marriott, I believe. And there was a PR event for the ASP's Boost Mobile Pro at Lowers. It's probably <laughs> September of 2002. And of course, everyone at Surfer Magazine, myself included, was there. You were there. And um, the ASP was having their media day, so to speak, right? And they have people introduce themselves. Um, you know, the media introduces themselves before they ask a question. And you raised your hand or you spoke up. You said, Matt George, Surfer Magazine. And immediately somebody, I think it was Dorian, it might have been Slater, screamed out, Kelly sleeps like an angel or something like that. Ref- that was exactly that. what they said. Yes. And and you immediately eviscerated them with a loud, like scorching one-liner that kind of just brought everyone to this complete awkward silence. And that was really my first impression of Matt George and the lasting memory I have of you. (laughs) Tell the listeners a little bit about how that went down. Well, what it was, was something that I find remarkable. And, you know, I guess I'm really sounding like the big Kelly Slater fan club. And, you know, I'll apologize to any, uh, any listeners that, that think it's going that way. But since you've raised the subject, here's the thing. So many people think, that Kelly Slater was born with a silver spoon. Uh, That's just not true at all. He had a tough, tough beginning, man. He's earned every single step of the way. 
And I know this because I've lived with him. And when I went there, he was 17 years old, the first time I saw him in Cocoa Beach. And his mother, and, and I was raised in a room with four boys, okay? And we used to cast dice to see who got the bed and who slept on the floor. And so when I showed up at Kelly's place when he was 17 years old, it was his single mother, his two brothers, and they were sleeping on the floor on mattresses in a tiny little place in Cocoa Beach underneath moving blankets from like a moving company. And I thought, wow, man, this is hard. Single mom, uh, you know, the dad was gone. And the mother says, well, you're bunking with Kelly. And I was an adult. I was like 26 years old or 27 years old. And Kelly was 17. But for me, being raised in a room with four brothers, I said, yeah, sure. So there I was underneath the moving blanket on a mattress on the floor in Kelly's room. And I started my story by looking over at him after he'd fallen asleep, after we had, you know, slumber party talk. And he'd fallen asleep. And I looked at his face and I started the whole story with, he sleeps like an angel. And that story, that, that, that sentence was so uh, impactful and disturbing to so many people because it, it, it really reflected a real intimacy of journalism that you usually wouldn't get, you know, that sort of access to this, this young man, you know, and especially me being a grown man under the covers with him. But I had to tell it the way it was. And I wasn't able to say, well, I was raised in a, you know, I, I was raised with four boys in one room. Try that. But uh, so that that's what really caused a lot of problems. Now, the original story that came out was edited by the editors because they were they were afraid of, of backlash where I was not in bed with him. I was actually standing in the doorway looking at him sleep, which is infinitely more creepy. <laughs> and <laughs> That's so bad. And it was so bad that I had to call the mom and go, look, man, I mean, she was going to sue me or something. You know, if I knew you were creeping around our house at night, Matt, I'm like, no, no, no. You know, I had to talk Carol down and, and, uh, you know, and, and it was, it was never Matt Warshaw was able to, um, you know, in a very dignified manner, say, you know what, we got to straighten this out. Yes, it's true. Matt was bedded down with him on the same mattress. And so, this in the world of surfing with the misogyny that we have and and the misanthropic feelings and the homophobia that we have it was a big deal you know that you start a story uh you know with 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 a writer you know lying next to his subject now had that been a woman had that been lisa anderson can you imagine you know but that it happened to be a young man you know was was uh, very disturbing to a lot of people and kelly had to put up with this a lot in his life. Like he's to this day, I was just talking to him what a, a week ago. He goes, Matt, to this day, I keep getting, he sleeps like an angel. And I'm like, I'm not apologizing for it. You know, it was real journalism. Do you remember that, that press conference? Do you remember? Of course I do. I this story is called Dream was, was it door? Yeah. Speak to me about that moment. Yeah, the story is in the book. It's called Dream On. Oh, really? It, no, the story about the press conference is in the book? Yes. Oh, I didn't get was, to that part. Yeah, you will. You will. Everyone will eventually. I it's called it. Dream. It's called Dream On. And it was that, remember, it was on a boat in the Dana Point Harbor. 
That's and, right. That's right. Yes. Yeah. And and everybody was there, and it was so goofy because I think um, Billabong had hired like a PR company, and they were trying to make it sound like F one or something, and everyone was just like, "Jesus, what a mess!" Um, it was a beautiful contest in the end, but the press conference was just it was it was during that time when the surfing world was really hyper concerned with being just like the mainstream, the almighty mainstream, you know, we, we have to be part of the mainstream, you know, like, do we, you know? And so this party, whenever you got a bunch of surfers together like that, and you try to run it like, uh, you know, like, like uh, the, the master's contest at, I mean, the master's golf tournament at Augusta, everyone's going to look at each other and just go, we're a bunch of surfers now. What's going on here? So, that's why my take on that night was was both it was both I, I saw it as both goofy and I saw it as very, very sublime. Because these surfers, if you read the story, these surfers like Rob Machado and Kelly and Sonny Garcia, Mark Uncle Shane, do all these guys, they they were looking around going, is this who we are? Like, is this is this what we are? Are we just going to put up with this? And so if you, if you take a look at that story, you'll, you'll see a real take on it. Um, All right. And, and a lot of surfers weren't impressed. And that's why when I came on and, and it it was Shane Dorian that said, you know, (laughs) he sleeps like an angel. And if you remember, I remember what I said, I looked right back at him and I just said, what is that alluring fragrance you're wearing? That's exactly. You remember? Right. Now I remember. Now yeah. I remember. I knew it was something so brilliant, and it was loud too. You like kind of screamed. Oh, sure. Screamed I've got a voice. <laughs> and I said, "What is that alluring fragrance you're wearing?" And everybody laughed, and and it just brought the whole thing back into perspective because up to that point, it was just so goofy, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it was real. Like you say, it was real structured and it felt really like it was almost the very it was like the first Bobby Martinez. It was like a preview of what Bobby Martinez was going to maybe perhaps say, you know, a few years later. But uh, sure. Yeah. Um, But God bless Luke Egan. God bless Luke Egan. Luke Egan has always had a vision. He was in charge of that contest. He was juggling. um, He was juggling. It was a big money. It was one of the first big money contests. And uh, I, I'm just really impressed that Luke Egan to this day is such a believer in professional surfing and not only a great champion, but and a tremendous surfer. But that guy, I believed, think Luke, I believe, Luke Egan, that contest. I think he won that contest. I think I think that was a year that it was just pumping. Wasn't that the year like the boat got mowed over? It was huge hurricane surf and Jason Murray yeah. was in a boat. And- yeah. Yeah. It was that year. And if you remember, that storm was coming in while you and I were at that press conference on the boat and we couldn't go outside the Dana Point Harbor. So we just went back and forth. They kept turning around, going back and forth inside the harbor. And I remember Kelly coming to me and goes, don't these guys know that they can take us out past the jetty? Because we've got a boat full of the greatest rough water swimmers on earth. <laughs> um. Let me switch gears a little bit. Sure. Um, what was it like for you? You're you were a professional surfer. I mean, you guys competed. You competed, Matt. Um, yes. 
I, I think it was like I want to say the late seventies into the early eighties. I could be wrong in exact dates. No, that's that's right. That's right. It was seventy nine to seventy nine to eighty four, maybe eighty five. I mean, I, I was I'm younger than you, but I was a young surfer during that period, and and it was kind of a dark. At least where I was from, it was still kind of a kind of a dark period in in California surfing. Of course, things were beginning to emerge, and things were, but but. For you, and I believe you were in the San Luis Obispo area at the time. Um, that's mm -hmm. a that was a very conservative zone as far as surfing, and sure. and you and, and Matt. I mean, you and Sam just sort of like you kind of you kind of took it by the teeth and just ran with it, you know, in a place that I'm sure that people didn't really appreciate it. No, and I'll tell you what, Scott. I'll tell you what was so remarkable was the belief that we had you know we, we'd, we'd grown up in the 70s we believed in surfing and you know we wanted to be part of the of this this whole dream of the ips i mean you know i, I i'm a i've been a card carrying member of the ips the asp the wsl you know I've, I've i've done it all and um we we were we were real believers in in what professional surfing could do and that's why to this day, you know, I still maintain great relationships with the whole free ride guys and Rabbit, Sean, Mark, you know, everybody. And but look at look at what we had. Look at the brain trust that we had. We had my brother Sam, who, as you know, is a towering intellect. We had Dave Parmenter, who is a genius. We had Tom Curran. Okay, we had Tommy on our side as he was growing. And if if that wasn't inspiring, and then of course, then you get Lisa Anderson, Rob Machado, you get Taylor Knott, you know, you get these incredible surfers that we were around, and it was a real belief. And so we didn't see the darkness. We saw we saw light at the end of the tunnel. And so we took it on as hard as we could. And I mean, let's face it, you know, I was a bit of a ghost on the tour. I didn't really light the tour up on fire. And I don't know, Sam won the rip curl trials down at Bells and he did some things that were special. But, you know, we we weren't, you know, we weren't in the top 10 by any means. You know, Dave made it to the top 16. Tom Curran, of course, made three world titles. And this was our group. And, and that's who we were. So we we were believers, Scott, and that's why it never seemed dark to us. It, it was a light, and and it led to a, a, just a remarkable surfing life for every person I just mentioned. You mentioned Tom Kern, um, and when we look at sport, we look at surfing as a sport. We look at um, the history of surfing as a sport. Um, there's a lot we can point to. We can point to eleven world titles by Kelly Slater. Um, I want to say staff has seven or eight, something like that. Sure. Um, but in my opinion, the greatest thing that ever occurred in competitive surfing was Tom Curran's final championship, where he surfed from the trials all the way through to the main event the entire year and won the the world title. Can you speak to that? Don't you? How do you? Where do you see that? Where does it rate with you as far as um, you know the pantheon? Well, here, here, here's what I like to say about that, Scott. Is that listen? I, I knew Tommy since we used to pick him up. Uh, and again, he came from a, a very hard luck family. I mean, he was practically living underneath a, a freeway underpass, you know, overpass in uh, Santa Barbara. And, you know, Sam and I, in many ways, you know, would pick him up every day and get him out of that situation and get him into the surf. And then, of course, Al Merrick took over. But but here's my point. Um, Tom 
Curran from the first time I saw him ride a wave, Sam and I, we were at the ranch and Sam and I look at each other and just goes, well, this guy will be a world champion. I mean, I mean, his, his skill is so preternatural. It's hard to believe, but here's something that, that people don't know these days, particularly when Rip Curl uh, portrays Tommy as some sort of, you know, madman, some sort of mystic, some sort of, uh, you know, uh, over the edge, uh, you know, alien type surfer. You've got to understand, he wanted those world championships. He wanted them. Tommy had, for example, Tommy had skinny legs when he was young. And I remember when he first started watching Mark Ocalupo surf, he and Tommy Carroll surf, he he had to change his body. And I remember picking him up and he'd be across the street at a playground, jumping on and off a merry-go-round before the sun came up, jumping on and off this merry-go-round, doing isometrics, jumping up onto a swing set, wooden swing set, and then swinging on it and then jumping off it. This guy trained hard all on his own. He wanted to be world champion. Yeah. He had a deep desire. And I don't know whether it had something to do with his, his absentee father. I don't know what, what it had to do with, whether he wanted to impress his young wife. He got married at 18 years old. But I'll tell you what, people don't realize that Tom Curran is not some drifty guy that was talented enough to just show up now and then and win a contest. He wanted it and he trained for it and he did it three times. Yeah. And that last one, the trials, the trials to the championship. Do you think that it gets lost? It's importance or it's uh, the weight of it gets lost um, because it was at a time when there wasn't social media. I'm sure many of the events probably weren't even, aren't even on film somewhere. Who knows? Yeah. What well, it's lost. Maybe you don't have well, it's lost. It's lost because we expected so much of this guy. Every way. Have you ever seen Tommy wipe out? I, I've known him for 50 years. I've never seen him wipe out. That's a great we expect. Point. We ex no one's ever seen Tommy wipe out. We expect so much of him that we expected that win. But I'm with you 100%. When you look at Stephanie Gilmore, who won all those heats to win at Trestles, that was one of the top three most, probably top two most remarkable athletic feats in surfing. Trestles or no. She came from nowhere, won every heat, and became world champion. Tom Curran, coming from the trials over the year in order to win the world championship. I agree with you 100%. And the reason that it's lost is because we expected him to do that. Yeah. What are your thoughts on the current state of the WSL, the WCT? Are you engaged? 100%. I think it's fantastic. If you've been part of the IPS and you've been part of the ASP like I have, my God, look what the WSL has done. You can throw as many lightning bolts and bombs that you want at these people. Yeah. And you can complain about, you know, uh, the leadership and the, and the dreadful commentary. And, you know, you can do whatever you want. But let me tell you what they have done. Let me tell you the positivity. Money, 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 money. 
you know, Kanoe Garashi, millionaire, all these people, millionaires, little Italo, you know, having learned on a, on a, um, on the lid of an ice chest is a millionaire. Why? The WSL. They have done broadcasts from all over the world. Forget about the commentary. They have done the broadcast and they have brought the money. I was there on the beach with Fred Hemmings with a card table and not even a chair and a stub of a pencil with a piece of paper. And that was the pipeline masters. You understand? Yeah. Now, that was the pipeline masters. Okay. When you think that the WSL took this on and finally gave Rabbit and Sean and Mark Richards dream, finally gave it to them, showered them with money, perfect broadcasts, dependability, giant website, podcasts, la, la, la. I th I'm 100% behind the WSL. I would only do one thing. I would improve the commentary. How would you do that? I would take the leash off everybody. Yeah. But just they take the more, leash. Yeah, just take John the Mac leash. Shows. Yeah. Yeah. You could put a John Macron there. You know, like okay. I got kicked off the uh, I got kicked off the air when I was at Karamas with the WSL, the Karamas contest. They came in and said, oh, that's enough, because I, I was just telling it like it was. And, you know, it, I understand that they're trying to reach the mainstream, which to me has been a mystery all my life. We don't need the mainstream. Does curling need the mainstream? Has skateboarding ever needed the mainstream? Has snowboarding ever needed the mainstream? Never. What are we going after it for? When in order to reach the mainstream, you got to live on the coast. So I've never understood this whole mainstream thing. We should celebrate who we are. We're a bunch of wild misfits. And let's get out there and get it on and be interesting to the world. I think so the mainstream thing comes from Paul Speaker. I think he's the one that told Dirk Stiff, we're going to be like the NFL. And even though right. Paul's gone, I don't think that ethos has left. Um, it hasn't left Dirk Ziff's concept of what's what we should do. Well, I just believe that, you know, we shouldn't be a bunch of bunch of knuckleheads and we shouldn't just, you know, be a bunch of uh, hapless surfers. You take the thinking minds of surfing. And you put this on and you put that on the commentary and you take the leashes off these people and you take the leashes off surf. I mean, those appalling post heat interviews, yeah. those embarrassing, appalling interviews after these WSL heats take the leash off surfing and you will make 10 times the money. Um, you know, it comes to mind for me because I, I always I have this discussion a lot with my co-host on my other podcast and the one guy there's quite a few actually that would be good i'm wondering what you think about um snake snake was really good as a commentator and he got pulled i think because he was a little too truthful yeah i mean uh, we could name a hundred guys and and yeah. i'm certainly not gonna name anybody that's doing anything wrong i think that the the, the commentary team that's there right now if they took the leash off them, would be great. Even yeah. Joe, even Kaipo. You know, Kaipo's an incredible surfer. Oh, yeah. And and he has a voice and, and he's Polyn he's got a Polynesian background. Just take the leash off this guy and let him go. And and uh, you know, Laura Enever and uh, you know, all these different people, just take the leash off them and, and take the muzzle off them and let them run, man. 
And I think it would be a hell of a lot more interesting for everybody. If they do that, of course, they're they're running the risk of um, some people saying some stuff that is counter to the WSL's sort of ideology or um, the way they want to present themselves to the world. I mean, you you do run the risk of, you know, somebody saying something that even you or I might be offended by. Yes, but risk is what sport is all about, and it's what the commentary is all about. The NFL, I just watched the World Cup cricket of all things. Um, you know, I, I would I would I would take all the commentary and I would model it after every single sport program in Australia. Yeah. These guys are out there and they're telling the truth and they're running it around, whether it's AFL, whether it's rugby, whether, you know, whatever it is. And then as soon as it gets to surfing, it sounds infantile, you know, yeah. where we need context. We need personality. We need um, um, we need intelligence. We need provocateurs. You know, we need insiders that 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 can really expose this stuff and i think i think in many ways this relates and it sounds like i'm shilling my book but no it, it sounds like you're 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 trying to get the new ceo job at the wsl i'm going to say matt george for president right now oh i know please i believe oh come on i put my name forward good no i did and they i was laughed at of course but i had to do it but yeah. i put my name forward of course i did i said of course i should run this thing exactly you know, of course. But anyway, um, it's the thing about this book in deep. You know, this was back. It is not a history book and it's not a book that you have to read from start to finish, Scott. It's a bunch of collected stories from 1979 till 2023. You know, I mean, these are you can check in on these different zeitgeists. And these different times, whether it's Mark Ocalupo, Kelly Slater, Kiala Kenley, Stephanie Gilmore, it goes on and on and on. And these travel stories and third person stories about these people and travel. And, and what it is, is surfing. I believe if you look into surfing, Scott, surfing's going to look into you, you know, and it's going to really, really make you a better surfer if you really get into surfing. And what the social media has done to us is it's 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 taken all our stoke <clears throat> and it's turned it into single word or single emoji responses. When before you could read an in-depth feature or you could listen to someone with context or perspective, you know, you could do these things. Now you have like a remarkable ride at Mullimore or something, something absolutely remarkable. And all you get out of it is, sick or a fire emoji or dude you know, that's that's it you know when rides like that should be examined and what people are doing at mullimore and jaws and and mavericks and and these incredible places mozambique you know skeleton bay they should these things should be examined because it's who we are it influences who we are and we deserve better When you're hiring for a small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role, and there's no faster or effective way than through LinkedIn Jobs. 
your time and capital are precious, and there is a powerful resource that can help you focus on what you're good at and integrate people into your team seamlessly to help grow your business. LinkedIn Jobs has created the tools to find the right professionals for your team efficiently and for free. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. Everyone is already on LinkedIn with their resumes and references, and now LinkedIn has designed a hiring platform to connect you with candidates specifically qualified for the job that you post about. More than a billion professionals meticulously organized to connect people by skill set to help us all advance our position. 2.5 million businesses already use LinkedIn for hiring, and 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. It's that fast, easy to use, and effective. LinkedIn Jobs can help you write job descriptions, filter the right person to you, and give you the tools to help you interview them like a pro. LinkedInjobs.com surf is where you go to post your job for free. Yes, totally free. That's linkedinjobs.com slash surf to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. What do you think that WSL looks like in 20 years? I think they'll still be around. Yeah. And I'll tell you why. Wave pools. Yeah. Wave pools are the future, man. I'm telling you, that's what I believe. The I future. do not believe that. I do not believe that. I'll tell you why. Because at its the reason you and I tuned into the Pipeline Masters in 1977 on NBC Sports or ABC or whatever it was, was because really what we were engaged with was this man versus nature concept. This concept that, you know what, we actually could watch a guy die today. Even though as gross as that sounds, we might pull over to the freeway and look at the accident. Because it, it's enthralling. That's why big wave surfing is so enthralling. So you miss that. With the wave pool, you miss man versus nature, which I think is is perhaps the most overriding, uh, most important factor here when we talk about surfing competition. I really respect that opinion. And it's the same reason we watch F1 or we watch stock car racing or whatever it is. It's it's for the crash. You know, we, we're hoping something dramatic and there's a terrible fiery crash and shoot me, but a lot of us are thinking that. So I really respect what you're saying. And I, I would like to- Hold on for just a sec. Let me stop you there because I actually think- it's more about like when we watch somebody climb uh, El Capitan. I don't want to watch him fall. I want to watch him succeed, but I know that there's the potential that he's going to fall. I don't want to see the crash. I want to see the success. And I think that's where there's a difference. Well, I have to agree with you. I have to agree with you with that. And I'd like to temper what I said because I got pretty excited about, I got pretty excited, but I'd like to temper what I said about about wave pools being the future. What I was thinking of is this whole mainstream thing, okay? Wave pools are the future of the Olympics because the one thing that the Olympics have got to have is an even playing field. You have a track, you have a curling uh, stadium, you have a cross country course, you have, you know, 
it you have the ice skating rink you know you have the diving pool you know you you have to have an even playing ground so when it comes to the future of the WSL i believe that wave pools are going to play a big part of it and the middle east is is going to rise and be a big part of this now now that's that's why i was saying that wave pools are the future because they will lead to the mainstream surfing and they will to in my opinion they will lead to sensible olympics you cannot have the olympics at you know manly beach high tide low tide you know sunday blown out finals you just can't do it um so i'm not exactly retracting what i said but i am tempering it uh with that so i am a believer in the future of wave pools well i'm not so sure that we'll see more will be revealed i personally find the competition in wave pools to be redundant and boring and and i think as i boil it down it's because there's no man versus nature now i will say this as you know too there's nothing i i would lo- i love surfing in wave pools like the idea of actually doing it is unreal i think there's a commercial viability there i just not sure that it's going to translate. And like I said, more will be revealed. Well, let me reveal this. The two most popular sports, the most watched sports in the Olympics are ice skating and snowboard and half pipe snowboard. Yeah. Uh, you don't think that's redundant? <laughs> you don't think I, that's, well, what I don't think, don't what think I they think do the same the, thing every time. It's like, I what? Think, I think those sports though, um, they never started with a man versus nature sort of appeal. That's a good point. That's a very good point. That's the one thing about surfing that that I find remarkable. Uh, one of the many things I find remarkable is that's a very good point because think about this, okay? Surfing is the only sport that's ever gone backwards, okay? We discovered that we could tow into waves. You know, God bless Laird Hamilton, we, you know, the sacred Laird Hamilton. We discovered that we could toe into these waves on tiny little boards okay and what happened even though we discovered that what happened people still went back and brought out their 12 guns and paddled back out and to this day they're still paddling in i don't know any other <laughs> you sport say that with a certain disgust no i think it's fantastic i'm telling <laughs> you because i'll tell you this you know it'd be like it like facing roger federer with a wooden racket yeah. you know i mean they went back, and I, I find that so true to surfing. That yeah. The man against nature uh, element that you brought up, you've really reminded me of just how important that really is. Um, and here's another thing, even on that same line of, of thinking. If you go snowboarding, you're not going to get eaten by a bear. But if you go <laughs> surfing, you're gonna get the potential is there for you to be eaten by something, an orca or a shark. Talk to Mick Fanning, you know. Yeah, that's in fact, that's the greatest moment in competitive surfing, right? There, there. it was. Tom there Cruz it was. That was incredible. Oh. There's a there's a funny story about Pete Frieden. Pete Frieden, the great photographer, uh, he was on the beach there and um Pete's not afraid to take pictures of uh, girls in bikinis. And so he was there and he was looking out and Mick Fanning was by himself in the lineup. And he thought, oh, and he had a big, you know, giant lens on Mick and the whole thing. And there was a couple girls that were very attractive in bikinis. So Pete turned his 
turned his camera toward the girls and he heard this big commotion. And as he went back, it was all over. And he went, oh my God, I could have had the stills of the greatest moment in surfing. You know? Instead, instead, he had turned his camera to the ladies. Oh my oh, God, wow. poor Pete. That's a good story. Um, going back to your book a little bit, again, um, the book In Deep, The Collected Surf Writings of Matt George. Um, I got a, I, I chuckled out loud. I, I laughed out loud in the quote from Sean Thompson about the movie In God's Hands when he just, the only thing he wanted to know is if they would clear the water so he could get uncrowded surf. <laughs> Exactly. That was so Sean. I couldn't believe it. Exactly. He was such a joy to have on that set. He was like royalty. And I mean, it's a whole nother book, how the whole in God's thing came together. And, and, and it's come full circle because like Jason Momoa on Saturday night live had a big shout out to in God's hands. The other night, he said, uh, in God's hands was the whole reason that he moved to Hawaii to become an actor. And, uh, that was just what two days ago or whatever last Saturday or whatever. And um, it, it was a real joy to hear that, you know, from Jason, I thought, all right, man, you know, cool. But the, 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 how, how the entire in God's hands thing came about and, and how, how it all happened is, 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 is a whole nother book that someday, or at least a very long essay for like Esquire magazine or something that I'd love to write because it really is remarkable. But the most, the most incredible thing about it, to me is the surfing in it. You know, it was so real. You know, we had Shane Dorian, everyone did their own surfing. Uh, Todd Chester did some surfing for me in the giant surf that was beyond my ability. I'll, I'll never ever, uh, I'll be forever thankful for that. Um, and, um, you know, the, when you look at this, we sacrifice the acting for the surfing, you know, because when the producers came to me and said, what's wrong with surf movies? I said, the surfing, it's horrible. The hero takes off. He he's going right at, at Malibu on a longboard. And then you cut back to him. He's got a wetsuit on and he's going left reversed line or something. You go like, look, let's get real surfers and try to make them act because the surfing is going to be remarkable. And so Brian K. Alana, Dave Kalama, uh, you know, Matty Liu on that giant day at Jaws, Shane Doring, his first day at Jaws, you know, uh, me absolutely crapping my pants out at Jaws, uh, you know, um, um, you know, Todd Chesser uh, doubling for me in huge gnarly backdoor, you know, wow, you know, the surfing in that movie is something to be very, very proud of, in my opinion. That's an interesting take because, um, and it makes sense. And I, in fact, I think I remember you saying that when, you, when the movie was being made, um, that the surfing was important. Um, and of course, I don't think it's a stretch and you fill me in here, but the director sort of ruined the screenplay and and he just over directed it or he did whatever. I don't really know what he did, but the movie didn't get much acclaim. The re, you know, the reviews were negative. Yeah. And yeah. do you think that in God's hands and will have a resurgence similar to the way big Wednesday had a resurgence amongst the surf sort of almost like an occult film type of way amongst surfers. Do you think that it will have, you know, a 30 year, like, uh, we'll all look back at it fondly. I, I, it's already happening, Scott. I get people coming up to me now uh, for the last three years, people have been coming up to me. Aren't you that guy 
And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'm that guy. And you know, <laughs> I I agree. I, I there's there surfers are always reticent to try to see a Hollywood movie like Big Wednesday. And it takes us looking in our rearview mirrors to realize just how incredible it was. You know, Big Wednesday was incredible. Point Break is a great movie, you know. Um, you know, In God's Hands, you know, fantastic, you know. And of course, the director ruined it. I mean, when I wrote that script, you know, I based it on Homer's Odyssey for crying out loud, you know, and they turned it into, I don't know, Baywatch or something, you know, but whatever, you know, whatever. Every single wave ridden in In God's Hands was real. That had never been done before, ever. And we did it, you know, we did Hey, hold, hold that thought. I'm going to take a quick break. I'll be right back. Sure. Okay, I'm back. Here I am. Much better. So, so Zalman King, um, yes. the director of In God's Hands. Yes. Was it, obviously it was contentious between you two, or was it, was it like deeply contentious on set? Was or did it get to a point where you just threw your hands in the air and just kind of bit your tongue? Well, it was this. Um, it, I became family to the to the King family, and um, it because at the same time we were doing the Red Shoe Diaries with David Duchovny and all that. If you remember, mm-hmm. um, okay. Well, the Red Shoe Diaries was uh, was a Cinemax late night show. Um, sort of sexy romantic stories uh, based from a woman's point of view. And Zalman and I were writing those as well. And we're trying to do it at the same time as In God's Hands. Um, so that's why In God's Hands is so beautiful to look at. You know, I mean, if you're a cinemat, ask any director of photography or any cinematographer, they'll go, God, that movie, my God, the lighting you know, oh, it's so beautiful. And every scene is just so pretty to look at, you know. Um, and that's because of of uh, the Red Shoe Diary lighting and and the team we had for, for this sort of, uh, you know, sexy romantic show on Cinemax. And we brought that energy to In God's Hands. Uh, it got contentious towards the end because I just saw my 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 story just becoming incinerated and 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 you know, directors. I think directors quite often just go off the rails and the whole movie was going off the rails and you're absolutely correct. Towards the end, I just threw my hands in the air and said, let's get through this. So I would suggest anybody watching in God's hands to fast forward to the surfing and a couple scenes and then listen to the last three minutes and watch the credits because those last three minutes when Shane Dorian faces that great wave at Todos Santos and rides the wave for his friend and that great message that, that I'll never forget about surfing that I wrote, it was at the very end, it's Sean Thompson's voice that comes up and says, he says, how far are you willing to go? What sacrifices are you willing to make? How good do you really want to be? Now, that's a message for any surfer that has ever had any ambition to be on the pro tour or even to be the best surfer down at the end of the street. How far are you willing to go? What sacrifices are you willing to make? And how That sounds like a message, just a, a global message, no matter who you are, if you're just Joe Schmo in Iowa. 
And I was really proud of that. And then the movie ends and then you go into the credits and the credits were photographed shot by Zalman King's daughter who was with us the whole time and we didn't know it, but she's a remarkable photographer and she was shooting intimate behind the scenes shots. And so go if you go to the credits in In God's Hands at the very end and, and, and watch them, you'll see the sincerity, you'll see the surfing and the love that we all had for each other and the tribe and the how surfers came together and made that movie. And let us not forget that the last song of the soundtrack was performed and sung by Kelly Slater. Wow, I I didn't know that. I yeah, I haven't I haven't revisited the film since. Yeah, I don't bl- I don't blame you. You know, what if you next time you watch it, watch it in German subtitles, and it might have a plot. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so my I guess my again I'll just ref- I'll I'll reference it like this. Did you know it was going off rails during the shooting or did it go into the editing bay? And you're like, what's this? I left that sh- I, when it was all over. I had two ulcers and I was 25 grand in debt. Mm-hmm. I fought everything ev tooth and nail. I fought for that movie. Yeah. And in the end, I, it wasn't up to me to control it. Yeah. Uh, I saw it going off the rails and I fought to, to the very last breath. And I did my best. Yeah. Um, I'm going to throw some names at you and, and if you could comment on them, however, however you feel. Sure. Lane Beachley. Stupendous is the word for me when it comes to Lane Beach. Mm-hmm. Stupendous. All right. When you, when you read that story that I have in the book called Ice Blue Eyes, I mean, just the other, when I did that reading just recently at Matt, at the at the lost uh, surf shop there in San Clemente, and the crowd had spilled out onto the street, and the lights were on me, and I was reading, and I read the story that I wrote about Lane Beachley called Ice Blue Eyes. And at the end of it, who, who made his way through the crowd and came up and got me off the stage and shook my hand, and it was Kelly. He goes, Matt, I had no idea the challenges that Lane Beachley has faced in her life. I had no idea about her, her, her terrible origins, her, her, um, you know, her, her health problems, her, her loneliness, her, all these things she fought against. I had no idea, Matt. And when Kelly signed, he, it was the first time he saw the book, and, and when he signed it, he signed the book I asked him to sign. He said, uh, to Matt, you know, one of the good guys. And, you know, Lane Beachley is a stupendous surfing story. And I, I would I would encourage any female listener out there, hell, any male listener out there, to read Ice Blue Eyes in my book and 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 really get a much greater understanding of what it means to be a female surfer. Yeah, you know, in, in many ways, I see Lane as sort of the iconic Australian character. Like, to me, she embodies what it means to be an Aussie almost more than any other male figure. Like, she's she's truly, she looks like she should be the prime minister of Australia to me. I agree, and she would be a great prime minister. Now, you might say 
Mick Fanning, he came from a, a, a very difficult background. He fought his way up. Yes, he was groomed by Rip Curl, and that's the difference. Lane yeah. Lane fought her way step by bloody step, like 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 the charge of the light brigade into the cannons. You know, seven world titles. Oh, God, you know, uh, Mick Fanning might be the other one, but it's it's that term, the Aussie Battler. I don't know if you know that, but if, if you've been to Australia, they call it the Aussie battler, the, the guy or the woman that comes from nowhere against all odds. And that is my impression of Lane Beachley. I think she is superwoman. Yeah, love it. How about Jimmy Medico? Jimmy Medico, uh, okay, I'm going to try to give each one of these words, okay, a, a single word. Lane Beachley is stupendous. Jimmy Medico is charming. And it shows in his photography. He was so real and so authentic and so almost innocent in a childlike way that we invited him into our inner circle. You know, Tommy, <clears throat> Tom Curran, me, Sam, Al Merrick, the, the, the whole scene, Kim Merrick, everybody. And he has this great new book out right now called Shaping History. It's unbelievable. And he, what he did with what little resources he had and, and, and his crappy camera equipment that was always breaking down and his leaking water houses, water housings, what he did was absolutely charming. You know, he, he saw, he's, he's, he saw something and he shot it in such a charming, honest way that it was almost like family portraiture. Yeah. So I would say my one word for Jimmy Medico would be charming. And and here's a guy that I think you probably interact with a little bit. And I've had him on the podcast. He's he's deeply interesting. Jim Banks. Oh, Jimmy, I was just talking to him yesterday. I had lunch with him yesterday. Oh, yeah. he's, a, he's here in Bali where I am. I, I've known Jimmy... Oh my God, I've known Jim. I we used to live together in Santa Barbara practically. And uh I've had some great adventures with him. I've been on his compounds, you know, up in the Gunangari Hills of Byron. I I I I I know his children. I see his children on a daily basis, Harley and his lovely daughter and, and all these people. And you know what, Jim Banks, it, it, when it comes to Jim Banks, my one word for him is real. Yeah. He is real, man. He is a real shaper, a real surfer. When you think about at the height of his popularity, at the height of his power as a surfer, he walked away from professional surfing, stunning the entire world. He had the bronzed Aussies behind him. He had money behind him. He had everybody looking at him, even though he had this, this, this different style of surfing. And let us not forget that he was an incredible surfer at Pipeline. But what really brought him forward was the Bali lifestyle. Him and Bali, there was a movie, there was a movie, I believe it was made by um, Stephen Spaulding. And there was this great footage of, of Jim out at Bali, all uh, at Uluwatu, all by himself. And the soundtrack was Bill Withers, Just the Two of Us. <laughs> this, this, yeah, just this, you know, just the two of us, we can make it if we try, you know, this whole romantic song. And I swear to you, if you can go back and find it in the archives, it is perfectly matched. 
Jim Banks is real. Yeah. Great guy. Quite a guitar player. We tinkered a lot with my guitars when he was here. It was fun. Um, Fantastic. Matty Lou. Matty Liu is such an unsung hero. Let us not forget. That's that's my word for him. Unsung hero. Okay. Let us not forget he is a five-time Hawaiian amateur champion. Let us not forget that he rips. Let us not forget that that day at Jaws and in God's hands, he rode right next to Shane Dorian. But the story didn't allow him to be in it. But he was out there charging, you know, 500 foot jaws with everybody else i mean it was an incredibly enormous day also he's a prince he's a prince in hawaii he makes so many things happen in god's hands the movie would never happen without him as soon as we show up in hawaii we turn to maddie maddie who do we hire you get brian kaolani you get marvin from the big island you get all these you know he's the guy you know i would say that that maddie liu is a hawaiian prince and an unsung hero. This will be the last one, and I'm not even sure how much interaction you have with this person, but um, I find him interesting. Derek Hind. Oh, God, Derek and I? Oh, my God, are you kidding? Derek and I go way back. I mean, oh, my God. The, huh, where do I start? Derek Hind. Um, eccentric, it would be the word that I would say. And I would also say misfit. But what a glorious misfit. And again, let us not forget, number seven in the world, doing 360s on seven-foot twin fins in the 80s. Let us not forget how futuristic this guy is or how intelligent he is. And I remember spending some time with him when he had to walk away. he, He had to walk away from surfing a little bit for some personal family reasons. And he actually became a mailman for a while because that's how much his family commitments meant to him. And that really, really impressed me. So he's not as as much of a madman as people think. Mm-hmm. I've always believed that once a year at like Tabarua, we should have a summit meeting of the thinking minds of surfing. And every night, and this is my brother Sam's idea, and every night should be a different topic that everybody discusses and we guide where surfing is going so there's design night competition night um surfing night a performance night the whole thing and when i think of the thinking minds that should be there derek hein would be just about the top of my list yeah that's great i'm gonna throw one more at you bob mctavish <laughs> bob bob and our mates man you know what i just gave away my mctavish fireball to a friend of mine that I was teaching how to surf and she did so well on it. I just couldn't, I couldn't help myself. She was, she's a, a, a an elite swimmer and, and a, a, an elite triathlete. And she did so well on this board. I just said, look, just keep it, you know, just keep the board. <laughs> and I, I've had some fantastic times with Bob. Um, we, we've talked about all the standard stuff, but we've had some more intimate conversations uh, about design and life and, and one of one one of the special times was when we were at the in Changu at the Deus Temple of Enthusiasm. We found ourselves in a shaping room by ourselves, uh, you know, with the with a six pack of beer, and and uh, we we just had a conversation about life and children and how many he's had, and and the one thing 
if I had one word for Bob, it would be toy maker. Yeah. He's a, he's a toy maker. And, and that's how he approaches it. And it's how he's always approached it. And, you know, when you think of the influence that, that George, George Greeno had on him, when you think of the influence of Wayne Lynch, and when you think of all this, that it still resonates to this day, the surfing of Wayne Lynch, Nat Young, and George Greeno through Bob McTavish and his incredible contribution to surfing design. Um, I, I, I'm just, I'm a, I, I think he's holy. I think he's a holy character in our surfing, and I'd call him a toy maker. I love it. We're going to be honoring Bob at the boardroom next year, so I'm pretty excited about that. Well, ask him about the fireball, the 9-1 fireball. I think it's the best high-performance longboard ever made. And I just gave mine away. I'm like, oh, my God, I've got I've got to get another one somehow. I heard a story about him. I don't know if it's true. Maybe you can validate this, or I can just talk to him about it. But somebody told me that he buried surfboards throughout California. And I don't know what that means, four surfboards, five surfboards. But because of his faith, because of the way what he believes in, he buried surfboards so that when he comes back, he'll be able to dig them up and, and go surfing, which I think is fascinating. Well, you know what? I've heard a lot of stories about Bob. I haven't heard that one, but I bet it's true. <laughs> Matt, I'm most intrigued, quite frankly, by the fact that you settled in Bali. Um, sure. I remember when I found out that you were in Bali. I don't know what it was, 10 or 15 years ago, whatever it was. And when I, I read your book um, or parts of I read some anecdotes from your book. And one of the things, a sentence that I found out that I found interesting is you wrote and I quote, Bali is not a place you go to live as a white person. It's a place you end up. And I'm wondering and that's how I felt when I heard that you lived. there. God, I guess that's the end of the road for Matt. Like, where else could he go? You know, and I, and I don't mean to be rude or crass about it. That's just the way I felt about it. How did you end up there? I don't think that's rude or crass at all. I think we're all looking for our for our paradise. And I, I was very lucky to find mine. Um, you know, I, I've lived such a global life. You know, I was born to a Navy family. Uh, I was traveling since I was in my mother's womb. Um, you know, learned how to surf in Hawaii. Uh, I can tell you the whole litany of all my travels. I've I last time I counted, I've been around the globe seven times. Um, you know, so all this travel and the whole thing about but I have that I've always had a very, very deep love for, for my Northern California. You know, I have a deep love for the San Francisco area and, and the Northern California vibe. And of course, uh, the San Luis Obispo tenure that I that I had there. So I, I very much consider myself a Californian, but I found myself really not fitting into the whole American vibe. And what happened was um, I was sailing a a. a ocean catamaran a racing catamaran from Langkawi Malaysia and I was part of the crew that was supposed to deliver it to New Zealand and when we pulled into Bali and I hadn't been to Bali in five or six years when when we pulled into Bali and I saw it on the horizon I knew in my heart I was never going to leave and I just felt it I said this is it this is my place I was 49 years old or whatever I was and I I, I remember I got my stuff and I hopped off onto the dock and the captain looked at me and I said, you know, captain, I, I'm, I'm not getting back on the boat. And he goes, yeah, I believe that. And I said, and I'm also never, ever going to live anywhere but Bali for the rest of my life. 
And he goes, you know what, Matt? I believe that too. <laughs> and I walked off and I've been here ever since. There's something about the energy and the spirituality that is so present here that matches my belief in surfing as a religion, in surfing as something spiritual, uh, surfing as something important. I do not I do not believe that surfing is a pastime. I don't think it's goofy. I think it's something we can take very seriously and very spiritually. I think it's very intellectual when you think of the amount of design that goes into it, the amount of philosophy that goes into it, the sacrifices we make. I think it's a very, very intellectual aim and a truth that we seek. If you're doing it right, people like Bob McTavish, people like Kelly Slater, people like, well, people like my brother Sam, you know, where, where you you seek it as a truth. And, and Bali was my truth because surfing surfing and spirituality combines here and it is inescapable i mean for example the 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 word the balinese word for surfing here is persilin char which means he who dances upon the water and that appeals to me as a storyteller and ev everywhere you go and and my my balinese and indonesian surfing friends the 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 spirituality is part of surfing and so I just wasn't finding that anymore in the United States of America. And so I committed myself to an immigrant lifestyle. I did not consider myself an expat. I consider myself an immigrant. I work here. I have a job. I publish a magazine here. I'm part of the community. I'm, I'm a, a, an environmental warrior here. So I, I do not see myself as an expat because I do not have one foot back in San Francisco. Both my feet are on the ground here in Bali. I love it, and I'll be here forever. Matt, it's been great having you on this podcast. We've covered a lot. We've talked about a lot. Um, and I want to thank you for your time on this late evening in, in Bali. Well, Scott, I really enjoyed this. And I, it's just so great to talk to someone else of intellectual power and passion as you are. And I'm just so impressed with your boardroom and design. And I hope that sometime, someday you and I will get a chance to talk about design because I'm dying to talk to you about that because I know how much you know. And um, I thank you for this. And, and I wish everybody, all the listeners, I wish them the best. And I would only leave you with this. Seek the spiritual side of surfing. Don't be afraid of it. Live at a tearful level, surf at a tearful level, and know that it's important. It is not a goofy pastime. It is an aim, and I wish you all the best with it. I love that. Thank you, Matt. Thanks so much. I appreciate that. All right. Good night. Okay, buddy. Thanks again. We'll do it again. All right, man. Look forward to it. Okay, boss. Bye-bye. Song Dickie Best wrote from our second album uh, in memory of Elizabeth Reed.